Welcome to episode 28 of the Going For Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. Today's guest is Jesse Krasnowski. Jesse hails from Wisconsin and exemplifies what I think of as the all-around Midwestern outdoorsman as a deer hunter, turkey hunter, walleye fisherman, and a wild game cooking enthusiast. In this episode, we discuss Jesse's introduction to the outdoors, hunting public land, traveling for out-of-state hunts, and Jesse and his identical twin brother Darren's YouTube channel, Gemini Ridge Outdoors. A few quick notes before we jump into the podcast. First, I want to thank everyone out there who has subscribed to my YouTube channel or my podcast on your favorite podcast app. I genuinely appreciate all the support. I'm closing in on 1,000 subscribers on YouTube, and I would really appreciate the support to reach that goal. If you haven't already subscribed, hit the subscribe button and the bell icon to be notified every time I release new content. I also want to give a shout out to Uncle Lou at Stealth Outdoors for helping to make this podcast possible. Check out Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com. Christmas is just around the corner and the products from Stealth Outdoors are the perfect gift for the hunters in your life. Thousands of satisfied hunters have silenced their gear using the products from Stealth Outdoors. Designed from the ground up with a mobile hunter in mind, Stealth Outdoors manufactures climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs. The off-season is just around the corner. Stealth your mobile hunting setup by visiting www.stealthoutdoors.com to silence your gear and to place an order today. And now, on to the podcast. All right, today on the podcast, I'm joined by Jesse Krasnowski. Jesse, for people that aren't already familiar with you, give us a little bit of background, where you're from, how you got involved in the outdoors, and when and why did you start hunting? Yeah, definitely. Uh, by the way, good job pronouncing the last name. That was solid. Yeah, so my name's Jesse. I grew up in central Wisconsin, a small town by the name of Thorpe. I call it the uh, metropolis of Thorpe, Wisconsin. There is 1,600 people in town. So it's kind of the middle of nowhere. And then I grew up in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere. So we were south of Thorpe, Wisconsin, about 10 miles. We grew up in the sticks. We had one neighbor across the street, and the nearest house was probably about a mile away. In terms of being in the outdoors, we just, it was kind of a lifestyle. I didn't know anything different. My dad hunted, my grandfather's hunted, uncles, uh, even heard stories of my mom hunting back in the day and getting lost in a deer drive. So it was just something that we were immersed in from an early age. You know, we were outside all the time, whether it was playing sports, exploring in the woods, headed down to the creek, catching turtles or creek chubs, and just discovering anything that we could in the wild. When people ask me, you know, what was it like to grow up, you know, where you grew up? Cause people came to our house all the time. And they're like, how do you, how do you live out here? And I, I didn't know any, I didn't know any different. I also tell people all the time, I couldn't get in trouble until I was probably about 16 cause, because we didn't have anywhere to go. So we could get <laughs> in a little bit of outdoors trouble, but it seemed like whenever we were uptown is when we were getting in the most trouble, I guess. And nothing too bad when you're in Thorpe, Wisconsin, there's not much to do there. But when it comes to the outdoors, it was just, it was just a lifestyle. And I, I didn't know any difference. I grew up hunting a little bit, probably around 11 or 12, you know, as a young male in Wisconsin, when you're 12 years old, you take hunter safety and you get ready for gun season. I, I hadn't bow hunted at that point and gun season was religion and still is in Wisconsin. I think I took my first year when I was probably the first, first year I went out hunting and I shot a, dad told me when I went out, he said, uh, you get a good shot at something that's a deer take it so i shot a dauphin and his friend gutted it for me and carried it out of the woods <laughs> over his shoulder <laughs> but uh you know growing up we were 
me and my brothers, we were heavily involved in sports. So we, we tried to hunt as much as we possibly could, but a lot of times we didn't have a whole lot of time to do it. But I, I always knew I loved it. And it, it drew a lot of parallels to sports, you know, in terms of setting goals and, and just in hard work. When I really got obsessed with it was probably after college. In college, I played college football again in the fall. I got out when I could, but I just I couldn't get out much. And I didn't, get, I didn't go to college too far away from home, so I could jet home pretty quickly and head out in the woods if I needed to. But after college, after sports, I felt like this kind of void in my life, I guess you would say. And I, I needed something to to draw me back to that hard work and setting goals. And I tell people all the time, there's, there's not many things like hunting that will get your blood pumping or get the adrenaline rushing like hunting. And I can only draw that to back to sports. You know, people that haven't played sports or hunted, sometimes I tell my wife all the time, I, I kind of feel bad for people that haven't hunted to experience what I see on a day-to-day basis. So after college, I, I got heavy into bow hunting. I probably didn't know a damn thing what I was doing. I definitely was thinking the other day, I said, did I ever, did I even play the wind when I was younger? Yeah. So many people <laughs> um, don't, myself included. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think I just learned so much from then things from learning from people that I met along the way to bouncing ideas off my brother, to even things like YouTube. And I'd say over the last five or six years, especially since I started filming the hunt, it's really become an obsession, I guess you would call it. So always involved with it. It's always been on my mind. But the last six to seven years, it's been something that I've uh, really kind of dedicated my off time to. I got a follow-up question on that. So so many of my guests that I've had on have been on Dan Infault's The Hunting Beast Forum. That's where I've met a lot of these guys. And that's not something that you're a regular part of, at least that I'm aware of. So what kind of resources? You mentioned YouTube. Did you read any books or did any specific source of information stick out to you? Obviously, uh, the School of Hard Knocks helps everybody out, but anything early on that you'd recommend for guys that are getting into it that are good resources? Yeah, you know, like School of Hard Knocks, that's really, you learn so much from just experiencing everything, getting your boots on the ground and getting in the woods and scouting. There's nothing like that. So you can listen to everything you possibly can, and it may not click until you experience that in the woods in terms of you know when i really specific guys oh man i probably carry a picture of steven ranella in my wallet like he's my child like (laughs) (laughs) you know i i got immersed with steve on the outdoor network not just because of the hunting um, conservation wise i read a couple of his books in terms of like our channel on youtube we do a ton of cooking on there And I just really enjoyed that other side of it because when it comes down to hunting, I love hunting. I love getting after big deer and elk and fish and turkeys, but I love eating this stuff and I love cooking meals. And there's something about Ranella that really drew me to it. And, you know, I I probably watch like everybody when you have cable, you watch the outdoor network and it kind of draws you in a little bit of it. But so much of that is, I don't want to say it's like, it's fake, but it's TV. It's made for TV. It's made to fit, you know, that 18-minute time slot with advertisements, and it's probably not entirely realistic, but there was something about just watching these things on TV that kind of drew me to it. There was actually a fisherman when I was growing up. His last name was Gillespie, so that's why uh, <laughs> it's easy for me to remember, remember your last name. I think his name's John Gillespie. He's one of the 
most exciting <laughs> over the top dynamic fishermen that I, I watch, but that's definitely what we're known for being super exciting. <laughs> Do you know who I'm talking about? Do you know who I'm talking about? I actually don't. I'm going to have to look him up now. Dude, this guy is so over the top. He's got a, he's got a video out there with uh, Brett Favre when Favre was like not even known. And they catch a muskie somewhere and I don't know if it's Chippewa Flowage in northern Wisconsin, but the guy is always yelling, you're a little bit more even-tempered than him. Yeah. But, you know, when I was growing up, my dad would be watching uh, Joe Booker and John Gillespie every morning uh, on the weekends. And then obviously his content has just spread across the world in terms of YouTube and now Facebook, uh, TikTok, all, all those mediums that you can pick up on. So I guess if I had to pick one guy and maybe anybody that gets big in this business, whether it's Michael Waddell or Steven Rinella, they're all going to get great, right? But the one thing I like about guys like that is I truly believe that they're in it for the hunt. Obviously, they've made a lot of money doing what they do. And some, you know, some of the stuff they do, I can't even relate to with the places that they hunt. But I do think they have the best interest of the sport in mind. So I guess I've drawn to people like that. And Steve Rinella's got some really good books out there. So guys like that are probably what I was probably most drawn, drawn to. Yeah, it's hard to fake real passion. And you can see a lot of those guys, you know, like you said, they've made it or whatever. But a lot of those guys still have the real passion for sure. Yeah, you know, guys like Hunting Public too. I mean, they've obviously exploded in the last couple of years. And I don't think they're in it to make money. I think their channel on YouTube is getting big enough now where they're probably making a little bit of money. I don't know much about <laughs> making too much money on YouTube. But I do feel like that uh, those guys are just they're hunters they're like you and i and anybody else they don't have the always have the top of line gear they're hitting public land and i think that's why their channel is so big is because people can relate to their experience relate to the hunt that they go on yeah absolutely there's a lot more of those guys out there than there are deer farmers with 2,000 acres so definitely more relatable yep well one interesting fact that i know about you is you have a twin brother you're probably my first podcast guests with an identical twin brother so how has that influenced you as far as hunting goes and any pros and cons to having a, a twin brother that also hunts yeah so uh my twin brother's name is darren thank god my parents didn't name us like jesse and james or something like that <laughs> no offense to any twins that have similar sounding names but when you're growing up it's kind of hard to find your identity when you look exactly like another person that you live with but in terms of hunting they're there's a lot of pros. I always have a guy to bounce ideas off of. We work really good as a team. Now, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of times where we argue, and our friends would tell you that there's times that we argue that they they think we're going to like come to fifth. And the beautiful part about our relationship is that we can have a constructive disagreement, as I would call it, and five minutes later, we're back on the same page. We're never holding grudges against one another. In fact, one time, he was a wide receiver in college. He'll tell you this too. Wide receivers, they can be kind of divas. I was a quarterback. So I always had my twin brother in my ear. And he will tell you to this day that there was never a play that he was never open on. And there were certain <laughs> times <laughs> there were certain times he would make sure he'd come back to the huddle and tell me. And we were playing a conference game, I think it was against Stevens Point. And he came back to the huddle and he was barking. So I barked back at him and next thing you know, we're just we're screaming at each other in the huddle. And our, um, I think it was tight. No, it was our fullback, Mike Hennessy said, guys, he looks scared. He's like, guys, guys, relax, calm down, calm down. I'm like, 
Mike, this, this ain't nothing. <laughs> this ain't nothing. This is just, this is just us talking. It's just how we communicate. Um, yeah, I mean, even this year, uh, we were elk hunting this year in Colorado, and we it wasn't a blow up, but we had a we had a strong conversation with one another on about day four. You know, you're getting tired. We had rain moving in. We had wounded an elk two days before. Tensions were getting high. As we walked down the hill, we parked at each other, and by the time we hit the truck, we were back on the same page. So, I mean, there it's it's a it's a relationship that I can't I can't really say I have with anybody else to be able to have I guess a strong conversation but move on from that and get back on the same page so I know I can call him anytime and bounce ideas off of him I can send him an onyx because I guess you know we're so close but we don't live super close to one another he lives back home where we grew up I live in Green Bay now so it's about two and a half hours and but he's always willing to listen I'll, I'll send him maps and things that I'm trying to do and he'll do the same um, our hunting journeys have maybe separated just a little bit. Um, you know, we both used to hunt a little bit of public land, but we or private land, but we used to hit public land really hard. The one beautiful part about where we grew up is there are three massive county forests within an hour to an hour and a half of where we grew up. So we could we had opportunities that were endless for us as we were getting out into the woods. Now, as I move out here, I don't have the opportunity to hunt private land. So I hunt a ton of public, of public land. He happens to live on 80 acres that he bought. And then me, him, and our older brother bought 80 acres right next door to him. So he hunts a lot of private land. And I'm sure we'll get into this conversation a little bit later on. But um, our hunting during the course of the year is maybe a little bit different. But he's always willing to to kind of listen and we're both always trying to figure out what's going on in terms of deer or turkeys and and obviously when we're out elk hunting and we're competitive um some may say that's like a negative but i'll tell you there's there's no jealousy at all he's my biggest fan when it comes to hunting and i'm his biggest fan i remember when he killed his biggest buck uh i think it was two years ago now i remember that hunt that i was on more than any hunt that year just because he had called me and told me that he took his biggest buck, the one that he was targeting throughout the fall. So, you know, when we were growing up, it was kind of the same thing. Like, if we ever had, say we had a project or something where we both had to give a speech, I would get more nervous for him than I would for myself because <laughs> I always wanted him to succeed so much. And he's kind of the same way. But it's a healthy competition. And competition in any way of life, but between brothers, I think it pushes us both to be better hunters. But you know, to go beyond the outdoors and go beyond hunting, it pushes us both to be better dads and husbands and just overall better people. It's got to be a, a really unique relationship. Obviously, I can't relate. I don't have a twin. I imagine it's like a, a close friend, but even closer. And there's a couple of things you said in that response there I want to circle back to that I think are real important. And the first one was talking about the, the elk hunt after wounding one and being a couple of days in. And boy, on a tough physical hunt like that, I know Colorado is a really physical hunt. You really learn about yourself and you learn about your hunting partners, especially. And I know a few guys that they've lost hunting partners after trips like that, you know, where, where things get a little testy or you find out maybe you're really not on the same page as someone else. So that's a good test. You know, if you, you think you got somebody that that's going to be a good hunting partner and elk hunt's a, a real good way to find out if you guys are on the same page or not. Yeah, no doubt. That was, uh, 
you know, you, you go into Colorado and you know it's going to be physical. Now, what you don't know is that you're going to get COVID two weeks before. So Darren had COVID two weeks before we went out there. And then the day before we went out to Colorado this year, I got sick as a dog. I tested negative for COVID, whether it was COVID or not. It doesn't really matter. I was really sick. <laughs> so you go into that physicality of it, and then all of a sudden you're going into it sick. It makes things 10 times worse. We didn't sleep much. I know we talked in Kansas. I think you said you had a little trouble with the altitude too, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it was just being sick or what, but neither of us slept. Like the insomnia was the weird thing about being out in Colorado. But I know when I'm with Darren, I know what he's about. And he didn't have a tag, or he had a tag and I did not. I was the camera. So I told myself going out there, I don't care how sick you are, you're not going to drag this guy down. One, he'll never let me hear the end of it, but <laughs> I just don't want to be responsible for, you know, taking a step back or taking the afternoon or a day off. But he pushes so hard. He always has. And the thing that was probably most impressive is, you know, everybody that's ever hunted, anybody that's listened to this, has, has wounded an animal. And the thing that was so bad about that day was when he shot where the elk was at, we thought it was a perfect hit. The elk was kind of in the shadows. It was kind of down into like this little crevice. And when he shot, I celebrated. Darren celebrated. It sounded like the elk got the air knocked out of it. And then, you know, I have a video that I that cut up for it on YouTube when I found his arrow. And we could see it was a shoulder hit and it only penetrated about four or five inches. You've never seen a guy more, more distraught. <laughs> you know, besides, in, in the hunting world, there's bigger things in life than hunting, but Sure. I mean, he was crushed, but we continue to grind the rest of the week where maybe, maybe another hunter would have took a couple of days off or, or even ended their hunt early. We knew it was a, I always call these things a business trip, right? You're on an out of state trip. You've got limited time, but you've got all the time in the world when it comes to hunting. You've got no outside distractions. And that's what we did. We, we got after and we got an elk the rest of the week. It just didn't happen, but. I mean, I, I never questioned, never questioned his, uh, his toughness for a second on that hunt. That's for sure. Yeah. That's a great point because the last thing, at least me, and maybe I did it on my first out of state trip. And that's why it kind of stuck with me is the last thing you want to do is the trip's over. And later in the year, you're thinking, oh, I could have did this, or I could have did that. I could have sat longer, could have did whatever. And that stuff eats at you. So I think for certain types of people, once is enough and and i'm that type of person where after that trip it's like i'm gonna hunt all day every day as hard as i can or uh die trying yeah you know like this was my first elk hunt well back to the covid mess uh (laughs) last year me and my older brother were going out there we had tags darren was also supposed to go it was a trip or a supposed trip from hell because darren the week before blew out his knee i got covid about six or seven days before and my brother got sick, and we were on our way out in Nebraska. My brother woke me up in the hotel, thought he was having a heart attack. He checked out. He had COVID, and then the next day, I went in. My O2 saturation was down to 82%. Oh, wow. And after after all that that went poorly, it'd be so easy to be like, I'm never doing that again. But it actually motivated me more. I'm, I'm stubborn in that sense where I'm just like, okay, that trip got the best of me next time I'm going to push even harder. And there's nothing I could do in that year before, but 
I can't wait till next year. Hopefully I get a tag because um, it should be a fun trip. Those types of trips, I mean, you figure out what you're made of, like I said, what your hunting partners are made of because it's very, very, very rare on an out-of-state public land hunt that everything goes right. I mean, it's extremely rare. I've had one or two of those type hunts, but almost always it's adversity. It's, it's getting sick. It's flat tires. It's basically anything that you can imagine. I had a wheel bearing go out on a trip to Ohio. I've had 12 flat tires in the last three years. I mean, anything you can, <laughs> anything you can think of that can go wrong, you forget stuff. This year in Kansas, I wanted to film everything that I did in Kansas this year. I left my camera arm at home. I was going to bring my 3D deer decoy. I only brought my 2D bow-mounted decoy. It's like, I've got a checklist for this stuff, and you'd think I'd use it, but this year it was just, I don't know, things go wrong, and all you can do is just persevere and, and keep going, and that's when good things usually happen. Yeah, I know. It almost makes a guy, like, again, you question why you do it. You say, man, I especially like a year like this year. My brother's got public or private land. Me and him and our older brother have private land. You say, why, why, why are we going over here to try to kill a deer? Or why are we going over here to try to kill an elk? Is because I just, I don't know. I think I like, I just like pushing, pushing the limit, I guess, and getting outside of the comfort zone, which is something I haven't, I didn't always do. I found myself doing the same thing over and over again because it was comfortable. And you know, on these trips, sooner or later, like if you think about the future and you say 10 years from now, like, you know, something's going to go bad. You hope it doesn't go horribly bad. But, you know, like you said, flat tires, I've had it. Brakes going out on the way to Colorado. Thank God it wasn't in the mountains. We've had it. We were on our way to Denver the first year I ever gun hunted out in Colorado. I don't know if that's 76 or whatever that comes out of Denver towards the mountains. Like five lanes of traffic. And the back end of trailer fell off in the middle of the traffic. Oh, wow. That was, yeah, there was two four wheelers on the back, and I was convinced one of the four wheelers was coming off the back. That was after the brakes went out. Uh, when I got to where we were hunting, my brothers had to peel me off the steering wheel because my hands were so gripped tight. Because that was the first time I ever drew, driven through the mountains, and that was uh, in the in the middle of the darkness. So, but yet you still go back. So there's probably a little bit of sickness in your head, but it's something about pushing yourself past that comfort zone. You know, like your guys' hunt. You know, after you get back from Kansas, people that me and I know what I'm talking about, when I watched your video last week when you guys did your mule deer hunt, like, I don't know how many days that was after you got back from Kansas, but you grinded your ass off in Kansas. I mean, you were, you told me, like, five hours of sleep, you were up, you were up before me every day, you were getting back later than me every day, and then you went out running around trying to kill a mule deer. It's, it's almost like a sickness, but it's a, it's a good sickness to have, I guess. Yeah, it's definitely an addiction. I left Kansas, uh, so the last day I was there, I hunted for two hours in the morning, desperation, Hail Mary. Yep. I saw one doe that morning, and then I got in my truck. I drove, whatever, 12 hours. I made it into Wyoming. There was a blizzard. I probably should have died there. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. It was like black ice and terrible, and I was more tired than I should have been driving. And I finally pulled over to rest area. I took like a four-hour nap. I got into Montana, took a shower. My buddy had already flown in. We got in the truck and we went mule deer hunting. And the next day is when I shot my deer. So it was, uh, it, yeah, now <laughs> people can watch the video. I got a new video out, mule deer hunt. But we, and I'll just real quick, because I haven't talked about it on the podcast yet, but we went in this area that we could barely get in, had to tie your chain up my truck, get in there, 
like six, seven miles from where the road was decent. And then we were out five and a half miles when I shot my deer and we had a four, four hour, almost six mile pack out, you know, loaded and through pretty hilly terrain. That was terrible. We were wiped out the next day. We pretty much, we did like a two hour hunt the next day and that's, that's about all we could muster. And then uh, day three, my buddy there, Jake, he shot his deer. So we had a good trip, but yeah, it was physical and being after Kansas, not sleeping. And that week, I think I slept for about the next two weeks after he left. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's like, it's so weird to say this because I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I'm a glutton for punishment, but that's what makes it, that's what makes it so fun is the challenge of it. Like I, I hear stories all the time of guys shooting like a 14 pointer cause they go back to the truck to warm up and they're out taking a piss and they, and they shoot a buck or something like that's cool. I'm not going to say I'm not going to take a layup, but I got nothing against anybody that does. But there's something about when you, when you put in that effort and you grind and then it all comes out on the other side, even though it was really difficult, that just makes it so much worth it. Yeah. I always say my perfect season ends on the last day with a nice buck. Exactly. You get the most of it. You, you make every minute count and it always happens on the last day. (laughs) Well, speaking of favorite deer hunting stories, this is a good time. Tell me your favorite deer hunting story. Yeah. Oh man. You would think, you would think it would be like the biggest deer I ever shot. And if I told you that story, it would be kind of, uh, I don't, I don't want to swear too hard in this. Maybe you can beep this out, but (laughs) my biggest deer ever, biggest deer ever shot was kind of a shit show. So I'll talk to you about a public land hunt and probably about 10 years now. So again, growing up in central Wisconsin, we had access to public forests all over the place. Darren lived uh, west of where we grew up, and he hunted this public land really hard. It's it's a big county forest. And I went out there at the end of October for a hunt, took our climbers. Darren was very familiar with the area. I was not. It was the first time I was in there. And we walked back, and we didn't get back too far. I mean, we were back far enough from the truck, but not, not very far at all from ATV trail or potentially even a vehicle or a truck. And just stopped and looked at the terrain, and it just felt it just felt right. It was one of those moments when you look at it, you're like, okay, there's bedding, there's the ridge, there's the creek bottom, the wind's from this direction, there's my kill tree. In that moment, I don't even know if Darren remembers this, but I, I was like, I'm, I'm going to stay here. And he's like, no, we got to go up further. I'm like, this is the spot. This is the spot. And I guess maybe it was one of those moments that I found out that I wasn't as dumb as I thought I was at that time when it came to hunting but everything literally turned out exactly how I kind of pictured it in my brain probably about 20 minutes before last light a decent eight pointer came in and at that time in my life on public land and even now on public land at certain times of the year I don't want to you know sound high class but standards change and I didn't my standards are probably higher now than they were um, and at that point in time, it was just the hunt. It was just the experience and walking in there and finding that spot and almost predicting what happened, luckily. And, you know, eight pointer came in, turned broadside, put a good arrow on him. We found him, you know, we let him lay and found him a couple hours later. And that was, that was kind of the turning point with saying, I was like, okay, I think I'm, I'm kind of figuring this out a little bit. I know I'll never know everything. That still in my mind sticks out as one of my favorite hunts because I wasn't sitting stand that my dad built for me i wasn't sitting in a corn pile i was going out on public land on a speed scout hanging hunt and, and getting it done so 
that was probably my fa- my most favorite deer hunt. Well, real quick, yeah, I talk about this on the podcast all the time, and people talk about, well, what do you know? What's hot sign? And I always say, set up on sign you can't imagine walking past, right? So if you come by uh, a rub that looks like it's a month old or whatever, and there's no good tracks or whatever, easy to walk past that. But it sounds like when you got into this area, you just knew it's something you couldn't walk past. And that you brought up another important point to me. That's not always three miles deep. You can find those spots anywhere potentially in the woods. Obviously, some terrain features and stuff set up better than others. But when you find that sign, it's like, take a chance on it because you don't always see that. So that's one of my best tips to people uh, that ask me for advice is you'll know it when you see it, when you can't imagine walking past it. And those areas don't happen on every hunt or every time you, you have to stand on your back for a hanging hunt. But when they do, don't keep looking for something better to set up there. For sure. I mean, you walk up on something, you just, you have to know. If, if you walk past it and you hang the set and you don't see a deer the entire evening, you're going to think, why, why did I walk past that? And I would say probably five years ago, I always thought you had to go deep. You had to go as far back as you could go because nobody else is going back. And sometimes that is the case, but sometimes it's not. And if it's a, if it's a travel area or an area that deer relate to, you know, if it's an ATV trail, those ATVs are periodically going up and down that all day long. Or when I was in Kansas and a, and a truck drove through the field because he was hauling hay bales. Like these deer, they get used to that. So sometimes you don't always have to go far back. And if it's something where you just take that specific area and you say, do deer relate to this? You, you have to try it. You just have to. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes those turn out to be really productive spots and maybe not every year sometimes they do but another prime example and i have talked about this a little bit two years ago in kansas uh maybe that was the year i met you or it was two years prior to that regardless i think it was two years prior to that i think we met in 2018 but in 2020 the buck that i shot in kansas was a super dumb spot i was 13 yards off a county road so (laughs) but i had seen daylight movement there of bucks and that was in 2018 i said well when i come back in 2020 as dumb as it looks, I'm going to hang a set there. And that buck that I shot was the fifth buck that I'd seen out of that tree. So it's never too dumb. If, if it, the deer are there, the sign's there, it's worth it to take a chance. Yeah, that's the one thing I've learned too, is never to go back against your word of what you said the year before. I, I do this thing at the end of every season where I write down like these little tips and tricks that I want to tell my future self on what to do for the, for the next year. I call it, I call it deer diaries. <laughs> So I write stuff down because the next year, you, you know, you get six, seven months out. And then also you look at these notes and you say, okay, that's, that's like a, I would never do. Why am I going to do that? That's stupid. Sit, you know, sit this bean field or whatever in this corner at this time of year. But you know, that's what you learned the previous year and not saying it always pans out, but sometimes you have to listen to experience. Even if you forget it, you can't always just do the same things that you're doing all the time and whether that's 13 yards off the road or a mile back you have to play off your your experience one of my more recent episodes i had jake hofer on from exodus trail cams and we talked about the patterns that they observe you know those guys are running a lot of cameras their their channel they have a big channel is very camera centric and he said it's eerie how predictable some of these patterns are maybe not to the exact day and the exact hour but big bucks that show up during the rut. And he said, even early season, that data and those kind of notes to become a consistent killer. I think that stuff's super important. And 
I don't know about you, but my mind is failable. So I need to write that stuff down. My Onyx notes are real detailed. And I've talked about this before, especially if you're on a DIY or public land where you're traveling, like I hunt in Kansas, I hunt in Montana, I've hunted in Michigan, all over the place. It's so easy to start confusing places or locations or when exactly was that. So I always encourage people, even if it takes two minutes, right? If you, and this is one thing that I, I really pay attention to, let's use Kansas as, as an example. The first year that I'm there, if I'm walking around and I jump a buck out of an area, you can bet I'm going to note the exact bed. I'm going to put a waypoint. What was the weather like? Where was the wind direction? Why do I think he was there? And it only takes two or three minutes. And then the next year you go back, you have really good data on that. You've got the date, you've got the time, you've got the wind direction, and there's a good chance you're going to find a buck in that area under similar circumstances, under similar time frame. So the note stuff in the diary, that's, that's huge. Yeah. I mean, and you think about, you can't just rest on what you've always done, you know, growing up in Wisconsin. And we talked about this when we were in Kansas, like I love hunting creeks. I love hunting creek bottoms, creek crossings. Sometimes there's heavy terrain leading into the creek where wind can get dicey. And sometimes it's not, sometimes it's just a flat area. But where we hunt in Kansas, maybe not the first year I went out there, I was like, oh, yeah, I walk in, there's an oak flat, there's sign everywhere. And we would see some deer, but not the deer that we were looking for. And now, you know, without getting too much into detail, but where we hunt in Kansas, it's a different world from where I hunt in Wisconsin. So if I hunt 90% of the time in Wisconsin or some other Midwestern state where I'm hunting timber, the things that I've learned and the things that I know don't always relate to where I'm at in Kansas, which is why I love Kansas because it's such a different hunt for me where I hunt now and it's such a challenge. So I have to make those notes. I don't know if it's, you know, I'm approaching 40 years old if I can't remember them anymore, if I can't put myself (laughs) back in that place in time, but I I have to make notes and I have to go back on that. And I almost read through those notes like weeks before to kind of put myself in that mindset of being at that specific spot where I'm hunting. In fact, just yesterday I was scrolling through some notes and I went back on the notes I made after we went to Colorado, things that I don't even remember writing. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, now I re- now I remember that because every every place is a little bit different, and I try not to get stuck in the same techniques all the time. And I think that would get boring if you just did the same thing every single time. Even if you killed monster bucks all the time, I don't know. I don't I don't think I'd I would enjoy it as much as I would to be versatile and to change your way of thinking and be able to roll with the situations and to try to get the job done that way. Yeah. And I often describe like trophy buck hunting as a marathon, not a sprint. You're trying to accumulate this data over the long term for the long haul to get more consistent over time. And I think the risk you run, uh, and I'm just being, this is like a generic guy, right? A, A fictitious example. If you're the guy that's got a dynamite spot on 40 acres and you, you're shooting 150 inch deer every year, what happens if that property goes away? That's that's my mm-hmm. big worry, right? And that's part of the reason I like hunting public land is because I've been on one or two pretty good private land pieces in Michigan that I lost permission on for whatever reason. And it's like, oh, now what? So I think hunting different types of terrain, different states, challenging yourself, you learn about all those different you know, terrain types and areas. And then you're just that much more versatile because there are things I'm sure – you can relate hunting Kansas, hunting Wisconsin, deer, deer, right? There's a lot of similarities, but the terrain makes a lot of those 
uh, similarities, not quite as similar. And it's kind of like figuring out a new puzzle, which, which is fun. And there's some things that you can learn from each terrain type that you can take back. So I think you just get a, a better idea of the bigger picture. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, there's places in Kansas that you'll find deer that you would never expect to find deer in Wisconsin or maybe any other state either. But that's why you have to, you have to adapt. You have to adapt to what they like. And like, you know, like you said, there's definitely similarities. They relate to food, they relate to bedding, they relate to cover. But when you go from state to state, things definitely, things definitely change. Yeah, so we're talking about out-of-state hunting. When did you decide to start hunting out-of-state, and what keeps you coming back? Before we hear about Jesse's out-of-state hunting adventures, I want to take a break to mention HuntingBeastGear.com. Co-founded by the big buck serial killer himself, Dan Infault, Hunting Beast Gear features state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered, field-tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet www.huntingbeastgear.com delivers cutting-edge products, including beast gear climbing sticks with weight reduction holes designed to deliver incredible durability in a lightweight climbing stick. Beast gear climbing sticks also feature non-staggered inline stacking and double steps, all in a 2.2-pound package, including the fastening strap. Huntingbeastgear.com has also released the game-changing beast gear hang-on tree stand. Designed to be the ultimate hang-on tree stand solution with four years of prototyping, testing, and refinement, the Beast Gear stand features a 16-inch wide by 29-inch long platform. The stand comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds, and it does all that without compromising strength or durability. The Beast Gear stand is finished with a long-lasting anodized coating and features grade 8 hardware, high-quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more details and to place your order today, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com. Now, back to the podcast. Man, I, I wish I could say what actually triggered it i think i've been going up to kansas for i think this year was my sixth year i remember after the bow season was done and one thing you have to understand about the land that i hunt out here and we talked about this but my wife is a quarter oneida indian so i am blessed to have access to thousands of acres of land out here in green bay wisconsin owned by the tribe just because I married her. I always say if I would have known that when I met her, I would have asked her to marry me sooner. (laughs) (laughs) It's very heavily pressured. Um, The age class is not great. It's not. There's certainly big deer out here. Two years ago, I was chasing after really, really big deer. But um, they have a nine-day gun season, and then after the gun season, they can use a muzzleloader until pretty much what we would traditionally think is the end of bow season here in Wisconsin, which is the first week in January. So guys are filling freezers and there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. So I think, you know, six years ago after that, I, I just wasn't seeing a lot of, a lot of big deer. And that's kind of what I was after. And, you know, I want to go back to the reason why I hunt. I hunt because I love hunting. I love eating venison. And I'm at the point in my life right now where I'm trying to get after big deer, not because they have big horns, but because they're smart and they challenge me. So I texted my brother and I texted his brother-in-law and I said, what do you guys think about going up to Kansas? And they're both down for it right away. And, you know, just, you know, get on the, the Googleizer and start researching different areas in Kansas. That's good hunting. And you can see Kansas like any other state. Kansas is a big state. You've got, you've got areas where there's timber. You've got farm fields. You've got prairie grass. So there's a lot of different options. And we settled on a spot. And we went out there and we saw deer. I don't think anybody flung an arrow the first year. 
No, I don't think so. I, in fact, actually, on the last day, we were all pretty beat down. We we were new people in a territory, like I said before. We were hunting areas that we thought deer were going to be at because that's where they're at in Wisconsin. And then come to find out, that's not typically where they're at, at least during daylight. But it challenged me. And every year going back, I need that challenge. And it's an adventure for me. You know, I can, first week in November, the rut here in Wisconsin is hot. And I can tell my work and I can tell my family and friends that I'm taking and from November, from October 30th to November 6th, every day I'm sitting from sunup to sundown. But I have a life, I have a job that doesn't always allow me to completely disconnect. I have two kids that are eight and five. I've got a wife. Things come up, very important things come up. And you have to tend to those things. When you're out of state, you can just die right in. And you can almost forget the world around you and you can focus on that. Like I said before, I treat it as pleasure because I enjoy hunting, but it's a business trip. I have one goal in mind. And you can really dive into that process. My wife is great with that. She knows I love hunting. My, Me and my wife get along so much when it comes to like hunting and fishing. I probably make a lot of guys jealous with this, but... She's very supportive in that. So when I go there, obviously I, I'm touching base at home, but I know I have one focus and she's my biggest fan when I'm out there. But it's that adventure of really diving into a territory and trying to get the job done. Whether it's killing a deer or an elk, that's sometimes secondary for me. And that may sound a little bit crazy, but it's about the process. You know, I didn't, I didn't kill this year. I drew back on a big eight that I saw three times in one day and it was frustrating. But when I look back at the video, there was times I was like smiling after it was done because the process of it was so fun. And the other thing about out of state hunts, when I'm hunting public land where I live and no offense to anybody that hunts public land in Wisconsin, there's a lot of good guys that do, but I probably have more trouble in state when the license plate says Wisconsin and the next license plate says Wisconsin, there's so much competition and, you know, people are a little bit territorial on spots that they've been hunting for years. When I'm out in Kansas, I don't, I don't come across that. I come across guys from Michigan, Arizona, New Mexico, Montana, South Carolina, Georgia, and everybody's out there for one reason, to hunt big deer. And nobody's oversharing information, but you get, you definitely, you know, in terms of like movement, you just ask guys, hey, how was your movement? How was the movement today for deer? And they'll tell you, they're, they're a lot more forthcoming because everybody's kind of on the same page and they're out there for the, for the same adventure, I guess, that I'm seeking. So those are the things that really kind of draw me towards public land. Yeah, and I would imagine that's why we got along <laughs> so good off the bat because you hit on a lot of themes. I want to unpack some of those that I think are super important. And so backstory, the first time I met Jesse and his brother Darren, they were hunting in Kansas. They were already in an area, and I think I showed up midday that day, and that was like my first day there, maybe second day. And our plan, our plan A, um, Joel, my buddy that I hunt with a lot in Kansas, had went out the window. So we were on to plan B, and I walked in on Jesse and Darren and actually spooked a buck I think that they were after out just because of the way I had to walk into this property, I knew I was going to wind out part of it while well, that's where the deer was. And and you guys were super cool. You know, I said, hey, I'd spook this buck out. And you're like, yeah, we think we saw him yesterday. And, you know, 
to me that that's how it should be right it's public land everybody's got an equal right to be out there and you never know what you're getting into yeah i mean that and that's a day i mean so we would both sit each side of this property and we would glass deer up and he saw i think the buck that you ended up bumping and i saw a buck on the other side and we were chasing after that one and, and the wind was right to chase that one and maybe not the one that he had seen but the one thing is like i always put myself in the position of the other hunt of the other hunter you know people can be like well why is this guy walking through at nine thirty or 10 it's because you can and he's not trying to mess up anybody else's hunt it's like you said plan a fell through Maybe he had some bad Taco Bell in the morning, whatever it is. <laughs> There's lots of reasons, yeah. Yeah, in that property that we saw you at, I don't know, I think a guy told me this year it's like 3,000 acres or something crazy like that. Like Certain things you can't avoid. Is it frustrating at times? I've had some really frustrating times over the last five years out here where I hunt, but it's, it's understandable. You're so much better off talking to the guy, befriending them, getting their phone number, you know, I'm not going to say you need to tell the guy where you're hunting, but if you communicate and you guys are cordial, everybody benefits from that in terms of hunting and just enjoying the hunt overall. I remember specifically, that's how the conversation went. And I think I apologized and I said, Hey, how long are you guys here for? I won't come back. And you know, if you guys are already in here, if you're going to be here for four more days, I won't come back till day five. Just that courtesy stuff goes a long way. And I guess I could have been like, well, too bad for you guys. I'm coming back here every day. <laughs> but Yeah, you know, t- talking about this year in Kansas, the first day I got there, the spot that I wanted to hit, I pulled up to the spot 1230. I'd driven about halfway the night before, and I was out there solo hunt because Darren didn't draw a tag this year. Pulled up on a guy in the spot. I'm like, of all the spots that I've driven by, there's a guy here. Okay, whatever. What It, it is what it is. So I drove by, and I saw he was in his truck, and I turned around. I came back and I parked and I didn't immediately set up to start hunting. I went over and I just talked to him and he was kind of cold with me at first. But then I think once I just started talking like a normal human being to him, he opened up next thing. I know he's telling me where he's hunting. He's pulling out a tree stand out of the back of his truck that him and his buddy kind of invented and they had a patent on and we're exchanging phone numbers. And for the rest of the week, He's telling me what he's seeing. I'm telling him what I'm seeing. We're kind of bouncing, you know, ideas off one another, telling each other where we're hunting so we're not messing each other's hunts up. And that's really what I think should be happening on, on public land instead of instead of fighting or, you know, I'm, I'm the type of guy too. Hey, I need to get there early to try to beat guys there. There's, that's just kind of the way it is. But I'm never going to, I'm never going to get mad at another guy that wants to go hunting, you know, because, I feel like we have more in common than maybe either of us realizes, but only because we haven't talked, there's this competitiveness. Sure. So if we talk and we exchange numbers, eventually, you know, you're going out to dinner with somebody or you're doing a podcast, you're exchanging text messages. So to me, that's the way to go about it. Yeah. First hunt for me this year, first tree stand hunt, I set up, had my stand put up, bow rope on. I was putting my jacket, my bibs on. And right as I was about to start climbing the tree, I heard something coming. <laughs> I knew right away. I was like, well, it's either a possum or a person because it's way too loud <laughs> to be a deer. And I look up. So I had set up on, uh, there was this, kind of this creek system running through and the wind was out of the north. So I'd come in from the south, set up on the south side, you know, so obviously I didn't send the place up or disturb it. 
And this guy had parked to the north, walked to the south, like scenting the whole thing up, <laughs> fell away. And I just whistled and waved and, and he turned around and went away. But like, that's public land, right? What, what can you do? It's like, I'm not mad at that guy. He's out there trying to fill his deer tag too. He paid the same amount of money for the tag. He probably drove, you know, how many miles or hours. It's like, I don't know. Why can you be mad? Uh, it's just not worth it. No, it's it's not. And I, I've even had guys like confront me like physically and verbally in parking areas. You know, a couple of years ago, there was this 14 pointer that was very visible on this property. And I would go out there and I would glass this thing with three other trucks. And I told myself, don't hunt it. Don't hunt it. Don't hunt it. It's not worth it. I said, well, I'll give it one day. So opening day, I get out there early. Like it's, it's dark here at like seven thirty in the beginning of September. I'm out there at one thirty. I set up. I hear people screaming at each other. I see a guy walking through the bedding area. He stops to oh take piss. <laughs> it's just crazy. And as I come out of the woods, I'm walking down the road, and there's a bunch of vehicles there at this point. I knew it was a mistake. Some guy walks up to me with two two other guys, and he literally puts like his fist in my chest. And he says, why the F did you sit next to 30 yards from my son? And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It turned out he thought it was somebody else. In fact, the other person came out of the woods. That guy was about 6'5". Conveniently, this guy didn't say anything to him because he knew <laughs> <laughs> he knew there'd be trouble. But, you know, sometimes you come across things like that. And you just in that moment, you kind of have to roll with it. But most guys aren't like that. I think you have one bad experience and you immediately start to relate it to public land. All this public land hunting is terrible and everybody out there is terrible, but that's just, that's just one bad thing. But um, yeah, I've got plenty of uh, good uh, public land hunting stories. <laughs> I'm sure everybody that hunts public land has a couple of good ones. Yeah. I would say my experience personally, even in Michigan where you've got so many, so many hunters like Wisconsin, where you can have really high pressure, the overwhelming majority, I would say 95% of my interactions with hunters are positive. Like you said, maybe they're not, oversharing or tell you what they're hunting or what they're doing yeah but they're cordial right it's very very rare at least in my experience like hunters as a group i like to think are pretty good people i mean every group's got a bad apple but over overall it's been a very positive experience for me yep and you know what you can always turn the tide too you, if you roll up to a spot and another guy rolls up and you know he's thinking about hunting that spot whether it's your spot or across the road whatever it may be i always have this thing where i will walk up to them and i will Look at them and say, hey, man, good luck. If you need any help later on dragging out a deer, I'll, I'll be back here at dark. And I've had guys where I walk up to them and they, they kind of give me a face and they kind of look intimidated by telling that and they, they turn on a dime. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, good luck to you too, man. So you just kind of set that tone early on to where, hey, everybody here, there's, there's plenty of property. We can respect each other's hunt. We can respect the property. And honestly, I mean... I love a good deer track. I love, I love helping people get deer. I love seeing people have success. So that's one thing I always do. And if I ever see anybody else at a hunting ground, I first figure out where they're going. I don't ever want to interject on that, but it's little things like telling them good luck and introducing yourself can go a long way. Yeah. So you've made a lot of great points, something else. And you talked about it your first year in Kansas with your, your brother. And was it the friend or the other brother that went with you the first year? Uh, for sure, it was uh, his brother-in-law. Okay, so Darren, Darren. nobody got a deer that year, and you went back, and, and you guys, you talked about having a lot of adversity in Colorado and just adversity on hunting trips in general. But personally, I don't think you can overstate the importance of having 
a positive attitude and like persevering. So you've got a lot of examples of that already, but just talk to me a little bit more about that because I think especially the first year, I always tell guys, and it's funny, I'm going to make a analogy here. I used to snowboard a lot and I would always tell people, if you're going to go once, go three times. Cause the first time <laughs> all you're going to do is fall down and yeah. you know, bang your head, bang your elbows. You're not going to have a great time. But by the third time, you figure it out. And I feel like out-of-state deer hunting, if you're a half-decent hunter, is the same way. Like, you're, you're probably not going to have a, a great time the first time. Maybe you are, and, and the more experienced you are, the more likely you are in a new state to have some success. But still, probably not. So go two or three times, and, and the attitude's a huge part of that. So I guess just what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I think it makes you a better hunter almost to not have success right off the bat. You know, if you your first sit on an out-of-state hunt, I mean, I can relate this to out here. I When I first started hunting the reservation out here, like the third time I ever sat, I shot a nice 10-pointer. Like, well, this is going to be easy. I'm going to shoot a big deer every year out here. So what did I do? I just kept doing the same thing over and over again. Next thing I know, I'm, you know, three years without shooting a buck out here. So, you know, out on public land, it's kind of the same thing. Like, you can kind of run circles around a little bit on what you always try to do. But, um, they, you know, we went, we went out to Kansas and we failed the first time. And the second time I would say probably was a little bit more of a, not more of a failure than the first year, but it was more failure over and over and over again. You know, so all you do is when it comes to hunting, it's almost like baseball, right? In baseball, you're considered a hall of famer if you bat 300, a 70% failure rate in hunting. It's way more than that. When I was a young hunter, I focused so much on the success of the hunt, meaning the harvest or the kill or whatever you want to call it. As I've gotten older, I've taken more out of my hunts than just, you know, than just taking a deer and filling my freezer. I think I had an epiphany, like probably like two or three years ago. And I don't want to say it was because of COVID, but maybe during COVID, I wasn't working as much because COVID had stuff going on. and I became a more positive person. I tried to see the positivity in certain situations, even this year in Kansas. Five years ago, the hunt that I had in Kansas this year would have crushed me. It would have been something I would have thought about for probably the next year. And going through the footage of that hunt that day, how many times that I said in the footage, and not by design, but just something that was actually on my mind, I said, doesn't help you to and long. It doesn't. You've learned from that experience. Now, next time, next time, if you can, because sometimes you can't, because it's deer hunting, try to make it different. Try to do something different. I've learned from the experience. So every single time I have something that happens that is negative, whether it's on the trip, during the trip, whatever it may be, I try to pull something positive out of it, some type of silver lining. And then maybe there there are times where a hunt is completely screwed but i still try to find something i think that's something that just as i've grown as a hunter and as a person that i've really kind of clung to over the last couple years specifically of just trying to stay positive because negativity in life but also out in the woods it's just going to drag you down you're going to become unmotivated to try something new you're you're going to try to talk yourself out of certain things because you're expecting the worst thing that might happen instead of 
clinging on to the one positive thing that might happen. And it just, to me, that's just what, that's what keeps me going is keeping a positive attitude, especially on those out of state trips. For being honest, and I feel the same way. Well, one of the things I like to say, a guy has two options. You can make excuses or you can make adjustments and I prefer to make adjustments, but it's easy, real easy to start feeling bad for yourself or the hunt or whatever on day five where you've been dark to darking, you're freezing, you're tired, and and something where a big buck comes in and you can't get a shot at it, or you wound one and you lose it. It's easy. Yeah. It's easy to feel bad for yourself. What's the point of like complaining about the wind? The old me five years ago would have been like, oh, great, I got a weekend off, and now it's an east wind. You know, it's like, adapt. Exactly. Yeah, there's nothing you can do about the wind. There's, you can't control those things. So take the things that are given to you and the things that you can control and try to make the best out of that situation. And I will say the last two or three years as, as I've adapted or adopted that, that positive attitude, I, I see more deer. Do I put more arrows in deer? Not necessarily. Sometimes deer present a shot or not, but I definitely put myself in a lot more deer just by having a different attitude and different mindset. Yeah, it's hard to overstate the importance of that, and you just stay in the fight longer. And to me, at least part of deer hunting is a numbers game. The more time you're out there, inevitably, the more opportunities you're going to get. And it's hard to stay out there if you've got a bad attitude. Yep. Well, let's talk about, switch gears here a little bit, and talk about some of your tactics that you use, or if you have a preferred tactic or a set of tactics, where have you found the most success deer hunting because one of the things I like to do on this podcast is discuss tactics specifically and a lot of that comes from what people on the hunting beast do because like I said a lot of the guests on the podcast have been forum members I've been a forum member a long time and adapted a lot of that so as someone who's not on there regularly I'd like to know what you're doing and and maybe where you've got some of your better bucks over your career yeah you know when it comes to hunting deer hunting turkeys, fishing, whatever it is, to me, it's, it's adaptability. It's, it's being able to change the things that maybe you think are going to work, not being stubborn to not change them. So we've all heard this before with turkeys and deer, like patience kills more deer and turkeys than any, or, uh, than anything, right? And there's, there's truth to that. If you pick a spot that is true, and can you can hunt it on multiple wins? You put your time in. A lot of times, you're you're gonna be successful, right? Or you're at least gonna put yourself in the opportunity to be successful. To me, I love a good first sit, and I, I don't know if you know what I mean by that, but like the first, the very first time sitting that spot, at least for that year, it's not maybe the first time I've ever sat it, but I always seem to have good luck the very first time I see a sit or the very first time that I actually sit uh, a specific set. Now I definitely play the wind. You know, I've, I've been familiar with these properties for a while now. I've been out here hunting this land for five or six years, but I wait for that wind to get right. And I can't wait to go there on a singular set the very first time that I do it. And I won't go in there until it is right. And then rarely will I sit it again or I definitely never sit two days in a row. So I guess the biggest thing for me, which allows public land hunters, you know, people can complain about public land hunting for some of its negativities, but the the positive thing about public land hunting is you can move a lot. Yeah, You're not confined to 40 acres, 80 acres, 160. 
there aren't a lot of people out there that are owning 3,000, 4,000 acres. The beautiful part about hunting public land is you can continue to move. And I think what puts me in front of deer consistently is, is moving, is changing things up. And maybe it's, maybe it's how I am in the tree. Maybe it's that positive attitude that we talked about and really settling in and focusing on that hunt instead of being bored and grabbing out my phone and not paying attention because I've sat this tree eight days in a row. But to me, the biggest thing is, is your ability to adapt and to, and to move on to fresh areas. Well, I know you're not a regular hunting beast four member, but that's probably pillar. Number one is mobility and first, yeah. first time sits. Yeah. I think it's, it's hard to beat catching a deer by surprise in that area the first time. And I, I don't think, deer reason are, are incredibly intelligent but i do think they are very adept at surviving and when they smell predator scent in an area it doesn't take them long to adjust you know one maybe two days so that's why those in my opinion those first sets when it's the first time in that area first time that season they they have such higher odds than like you said third fourth fifth sixth time in there for in, in a row worst case or for even for that season the deer catch on real quick yeah, you know, like there's spots out here that I will only sit in September because I'm fortunate enough to be able to hunt white-tailed deer in Wisconsin the first weekend of September, which a lot of guys kill to have that opportunity. So when you see a deer... And just for clarity, you're talking about on the reservation so people don't think yeah, you're, you're out yeah, there violating. Yeah, no, I'm not a, not a violator. Uh, yeah, the first weekend of September is typically when the reservation opens up and then weekend closest to the 15th is when the state tags open now the mosquitoes are bad it's usually warm so you've got to have a plan for when you kill a deer but you see deer that are unpressured and they're very calm they're very relaxed they're in their natural uh state and sometimes i wish i would hunt fields more i i've actually like told myself don't hunt fields it's too easy but i don't know maybe next year i'll change my mind but (laughs) (laughs) um you're gonna do it september is the time to do it I know it is, it is, but you see those deer change so much. The property that I hunt early in September, you won't get a picture in mid-October for three or four days. And I'm not saying trail cameras or everything, but I've hunted it too. And I've seen it. You get the, you get this pressure. You get people walking through the weather, deer hunters or coon hunters, coyote hunters, small, small game, whatever it is. Once the leaves start falling, temperatures change this specific area gets pressured and you have to be able to adapt and find a new spot. And I didn't know that, you know, until you hunt it. Basically you find it out as you hunt it and you strike out enough times. You're like, wow, um, this property has really changed a lot. So, you know, patience in that spot after a certain point of time is probably not, you're not going to have much success. Now when the rut happens, all bets are off. You never know what's going to happen. If you're trying to get something throughout October, it's just a spot that's probably not going to be productive for you. So my ability, and I think most public land hunters' ability, just to keep moving, and if one, just not to learn. Like, just not to learn these different spots. What are you sitting? Are you sitting, you know, are you going aggressive, and you're sitting the downward side of a bedding area? Are you sitting food? Are you sitting a crossing or a travel route? When you sit those areas on the specific type of days, I feel like you just gain so much information, whether you have success, success seeing deer or not, that that to me is worth the move, whether I think I'm going to get a deer or not, just to learn more about it more than anything else. 
Yeah, and as a side note to that story, I couldn't agree more. Moving around, a few things I want to talk about, actually. You said this property's no good in October, right? At, at some point, that kind of goes ties back in with keeping your deer diary. You might put a note in, oh, skip this one in October. It's junk, but it's hot in September. And it kind of goes back into what you said about experience, too. And I always say this phrase, there's no replacement for experience. I mean, you can read all you want, but you don't know that property's good in September and no good in October until you get out there for two, three, four seasons. Kind of ties into Definitely. Out, out of state. If you're going to go out of state, go to the same area for two or three years, unless it's a total, total bust. But you got to put time in and, and invest. And I think, uh, especially in today's day and age, social media, so many people want results overnight. And that's just not realistic. Typically, I mean, I guess you can pay, you can go to high fences or outfitters, but if you're DIY or the typical, even private land, smaller parcels that guys are hunting, you have to invest some time and, and take those notes and work for it. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention was hunting new areas. I, I love that. And if you've got one great area, how do you find a second one? It's not by hunting the same great area over and over again. And as a, a prime example, this year I shot my biggest or highest scoring deer ever. Now, granted it was with a rifle and, uh, I'm a little archery snobbish myself, self-admittedly. So, so I discount that deer a little bit, but, but that was a good an, deer. It was a good deer, man. It was a nice deer and I'm happy with it. Even though I shot it with a rifle, I'd be more happy if it was with a bow, but that's another story. But that was a, yeah. that's why me, you and Darren get along. Well, <laughs> yeah, that was a brand new area to me. I had shed hunted it twice before and found a decent amount of mule deer sheds. And it looked like an area that obviously would, would hold deer during the rut, but I had never hunted it. Access was difficult. So this year when my friend was out and I had uh, another person to help me pack a deer, we got in there and, and it obviously worked out well. But if I had never taken the chance to hunt that area, then who knows? So you got to do a little prospecting every year. Now, I certainly hunt some old faithful stuff every year, but I like to mix in, I don't know, 30, 40% brand new stuff. Mm-hmm. When you tag out in the spot, there's always something that's going to draw you back to that spot. And I've got, I've got my favorite spots for reasons for having success or whatever it may be. You know, I killed a turkey two years ago in a spot that, you know, long story short, my wife is Oneida. Her uncle kind of showed me around this area. He ended up getting cancer and passing away about three months before turkey season. He was a big turkey hunter and I still, no matter what, no matter where I think the turkeys are going to be, I always hit that spot the first day of turkey season, just because it's like, it's my spot. (laughs) I like listening to the carnals and the the turkeys and owls and everything wakes up in that creek bottom. And it's just something that's special to me, but I lean on being versatile in terms of being successful in the woods and on the water too. Yeah. Those spots like that, they're, they're special. And like I said, there's certainly something to be said to have some old faithful spots or spots that have produced consistently. I think a guy would be foolish to not hunt those just for the sake of hunting new ground, but some sort of balance because it's hard to ever add a new favorite spot. If you never hunt something new, no doubt. Well, let's talk about gear real quick. Now, personally, I'm not a huge gear junkie, but I, I do know a lot of people get wrapped up in gear. So let's say we took your hunting kit down to zero what do you think are three to five of your favorite? Um, and I mean, you can mention brands or just, you know, binos, whatever things that really help you to have a more successful hunt. Yeah. It's funny. You should say that about the gear thing. Cause you kind of sent me a little bit of an outline of what we we're going to talk about tonight. And I looked through all the questions like, Oh, those are, 
those are easy. I can pull knowledge off of those. And then you sent me the gear thing and I'm like, well, I got a lot of gear. Now what, what, what can I live without? And I had a hard time really picking out three to five things. So I'll, I'll try my best here. Sure. The first thing, this is kind of a joke, but, uh, toilet paper, <laughs> 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 you know, it's so funny though, not for obvious reasons, but I love using uh, toilet paper to track deer. <laughs> so there's been so many times this year where I forgot a roll of toilet paper for one reason or the other. And I, I regretted it. But <laughs> in terms of like, in terms of like hunting, um, the first thing that I need is a good pair of boots. And I look for, I need versatility in my boot. I'm not the type of guy that has like four different type of boots. Now don't get, you know, when it comes to like my camo, I've got different camo for every every degree under the sun. If it's 65 degrees, I'm wearing this. If it's 70 degrees, I'm wearing this. So when it comes to a boot, I really, I rely on kind of one boot. I have a lacrosse alpha, I think it's called alpha sport. It's light, it's water resistant. Biggest thing I, I love about it is that it's comfortable. Um, they don't get overly hot in the cold weather. They're probably not going to offer me the best in terms of warmth. And I should probably step up to something a little bit better to kind of keep my feet warm. But for some reason in my older age, as I approach 40, I need something comfortable when I'm walking and something comfortable when I'm in the tree stand on my feet. I don't know why my feet need to be comfortable. No, that's a great number one in Western hunting, especially like boots have become hugely important to me in Michigan. I just wore knee high rubber boots for the most part, but out here. Yeah. A good lace. Are those ones that you're talking about? Is that a lace up or a, a rubber boot? These are rubber boots, but I used uh, this year on in Colorado. I used some Keen. What do you typically use on that heavy terrain stuff? What do you like? So I started, geez, it'd be three years ago now, wearing Kenetrex, which are like a mountain specific boot. The guy that developed Kenetrex is a big sheep hunter. And with that said, they're overkill for Midwest hunting for sure because they have a really stiff sole. But if you're in rocky or steeper terrain, man, you can't beat them because that stiff yeah. gives you way better traction. But uh, yeah, comfort is the big thing. And, and one of the reasons I went with those is because I have really wide feet and they make a legitimately wide boot or even crispy, like they're wide boot. They're, they're too narrow for me. So a big part of the reason was because they fit appropriately and it goes back to comfort. For sure. I mean, that boot that I was talking about, that alpha, the lacrosse alpha, it's, that's not something you could roll with in the mountains, but. You know, I, in the spring fishing, while I run out here on the Fox River, I wear it then. I wear turkey hunting. I wear them scouting. I wear them early bow season and into the late bow season. I don't wear them in the mountains, but it's something that it's just like this easy slip on comfort. And I can put so many hours on these things and, and not beat them up. But, um, yeah, like I said before, when I was 21, man, I would go to Walmart. I'd buy $20 boots. Right, a thirty-five dollar tree stand, and I'd be, I'd be really happy. But now that I'm older, I need that comfort definitely to just stay out there longer and keep myself motivated. I guess. Yeah, and I kind of interrupted you there. So, what are the other ones that are high on the list for you? Binos, binos would have been one of those things. So I, I got, uh, I think I had ten by forty-two vortex. I wish I probably would have went a little bit stronger on those but when i go hunting there are so many times where i say i don't need my binoculars what do i need those for i'm sitting like this swamp or i'm sitting in this area where i can't see far and everything every single time i don't take them i always wish i had them always there's never 
you know, finally over, over the years, I realized just take them, put them on every single time. They're not that, they're not heavy. They're not cumbersome. Just put them on. But when I used to like him and haw about wearing them, that was one thing that I was like, you need to take those out every time, whether it's on a turkey hunt and you're walking out and you see turkeys crossing the road, you're on a deer hunt, you see a flash of a deer from 150 yards away. Good binoculars is one thing that I definitely need. Third thing I thought really long and hard on. Now, there's so many things in my pack. You know, I film hunts, so there's so many things in terms of the, the camera work that I that I need to have this, whether it's an external battery, a GoPro, something to level a camera. But when it comes to, like, hunting, I need a good saw, a good hand saw. That's another thing. If I don't have it in my pack, I usually carry two saws. I carry one uh, kind of the singular string hand saw and then one actually foldable handsaw that I don't get too crazy in public land, nor do I think anybody should about, you know, cutting down trees or anything like that. But, you know, when you're up there and you get set up in your stand, there's like that one little limb that's like four feet in front of you. You're really glad that the guy that sat up in that exact tree the day before <laughs> cut that branch down. I get it. Yeah, I get yeah, it. for sure. Or, you know, maybe make a little snap down. But I, I really use that a ton for turkey hunting. I got a pair, I got a saw that, you know, I'll just, I'll take it and I'll rip some raspberry bushes off and I'll just stack them in front of me just for any type of cover or just stomping down something. But that little hand saw, if you ever need to split the pelvic bone on a deer, that little zipper saw with the little key rings on the end, that thing works wonders for that. Yeah. So a good saw is probably the third thing. But otherwise, like you said, in terms of gear, I'll make anything work. So I don't need, there, there isn't a ton besides, you know, as I've gotten into the camera, the filming business, I guess you'd say, then that I absolutely have to have besides the essentials of actually taking out a deer, like your bow and your release and things like that. Yeah. We had the exact same top two. Like if you said, Hey, what are the two? You you only have a thousand dollars. What are you going to spend a thousand dollars on? It's like, I'm going to spend 400 on boots, 400 on binos, and then 200 on everything else. Cause (laughs) I really do think, especially out West, the, the binos and the boots, they're both super important. It's like, okay, if you get blisters after three miles, your hunt's over. Uh, or if you get blisters after the first day, your hunt's over. So boots are so important. A well-fitting boot, a boot that you know you can do 5, 10, 15 miles in a day that you've got broken. That's a big thing. Like anybody that's listening, if you're not familiar with Kenetrex, uh, one, I've got a review on my blog you can check out. Two, if you're going to go that route, I have absolutely hated those boots for the first 40 miles. Like I, I was to the point where I didn't think I was going to be able to wear them because the sole is so stiff when it's new and the leather is so stiff. Oh yeah. I wore Danners before that and like five miles, the Danners were good to go. These boots 40, uh-huh. 40, 50 miles before they were like usable. So make sure, yeah, if you're planning an Elcon or some new boots, you got to put the time in on certain boots or you're not going to like them. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, Darren told me about the Keens and I was, I wore those things for 10, 15 miles. Like, these things are terrible. You know, like my ankle, specifically around my ankles, it was really tight, restricting. I did not like it as I put more miles on it. Like I spent the whole week out there and I never, never thought about my feet, never had any discomfort with them at all. Yeah, it's a big deal. And uh, the binos too, it's like, again, out West, but even in Michigan, I started using them all the time because I was getting to the point where I was trying to target a little bit bigger bucks. And in Michigan, that meant generally the difference between a two-year-old and a three-year-old. But mm-hmm. when that deer's 50 yards away or 80 yards away coming in through the brush, if you got a chance to look it over with binos versus your naked eye, 
it's like that might be the difference beside you know getting ready to draw and not so even in yeah. even in tighter swampier heavier covered terrain i hate to be without them also yeah i will say this too this year i became one of those spoiled hunters again i'm not acting like i'm ancient but for some reason <laughs> the last two or th- the last two or three years like the cold is just not agreeing with me and had a couple of opportunities last year where I drew back on, on deer and I had so much, so many layers on, like it just felt completely unnatural. And I try to shoot my bow with some type of layers on. I try to replicate what's going to happen in the field. But when it's, I, I hunted in like minus 12 last year and I said, you know what, next year I'm going to buy some good cold gear. So nobody make fun of me no, nobody looked down on me but i bought the sitka gear this year and i will tell you it's it's expensive and your your heart drops when you when you pay for it but i will tell you i was warm this year in kansas those days and then gun opener in wisconsin this year is very cold that sitka gear actually uh it was it was worth its price as, as i'm older now and i have a little bit more money to spend <laughs> I haven't bought myself a pair of jeans in like 10 years. So I just buy <laughs> Man, I feel like we're brothers. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> Same thing. I, the, the first deer I killed, I was wearing tennis shoes and, and uh, hand-me-down camo and with a 20. I was wearing Doc Martens. Yeah. Doc Martens yeah. was the first <laughs> deer I ever killed. <laughs> so you don't need the stuff, but man, like you said, when you get older and uh, colder and have a little bit more money to spend, it's it is hard to justify the price of that stuff but it's like if that's something you really love doing meaning deer hunting and outdoors and you get a lot of use out of it it's it's a little easier to stomach yeah for sure we've talked a lot about filming uh that's something that one i am terrible at but trying to do more of and uh it's funny joel keeps making fun of me because i never get kill shots on video which is like such a huge part of it but i if it comes down to the getting the deer on camera for a kill shot or shooting the deer, I'm still to the point where I'm always shooting. So I've had some problems yeah, there, but you and your brothers have done quite a few videos now. Like you said, you, you're kind of an all-around outdoorsman, which is awesome. Turkey hunts, walleye fishing, cooking, deer hunting. So I guess I'd like to know how did you first or why did you first start filming and what have you learned about, one, about filming, how have you gotten better at it over time and, and what's it taught you about hunting and maybe yourself? Yeah, you know how I got started, man. I mean, first first camera I bought was probably seven or eight years ago. Little camcorder. I bought a muddy camera arm for about thirty five dollars. Um, a GoPro Hero Four, I think it was, and started filming. And it, you know, just trying to kind of figure it out where I wanted the camera set up. What what else? What was I actually trying to capture? And then back home, I killed, the first kill I had on camera was, was actually a doe during the ride. Me and Darren talk about this all the time. It's, he's like, oh, you, you know, and a lot of people would probably be against me on this, but don't kill a doe during the rut, right? She could be hot. You're going to bucks running around like crazy. Well, when it was November 5th and I had no deer in my freezer, I forgot the date. The doe gave me a 12-yard shot, and I got it on camera. I actually drew the bow back. She moved. I was at full draw. I moved the camera over. Uh, shot her. She fell down 30 yards away. And then for the next like 25 minutes, multiple bucks came up and tried to breed her. Uh, she was actually deceased in front of me. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was like this cool hunt and you know, how hunting and fishing stories, right? Everybody's got a story, but I always say when it comes to like hunting and fishing stories, I don't have any stories because everything I do, the majority of it, 90% of it is on film. So of the story that I would have told about shooting this doe and having her 
try to get bread by two different bucks. I don't think anybody would have believed it until they started showing the footage. And I, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. Showed it to people, and people thought it was entertaining, and people were laughing. So I'm gonna, I, my wife had a um, computer, an Apple. Someone and I moved, and I just, I, I did some editing on it, and, um, you know, full disclosure, when the Bucks were trying to do their thing with her, I put some like 1970s cheesy porno music to it. <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> having fun. Though. Our, that's what it should be. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, for sure, and that's kind of like when I was done, there was a process, there was a finality to it. And I sent it to my brothers and they laughed and everybody thought it was funny. And then I did a couple more things and I was like, man, I really enjoyed the challenge of filming. But the thing that was crazy is I really enjoyed the editing process. Like in my line of work, I'm a physical therapist. And when I see somebody, our goal is to get them better. But a lot of times insurance dictates, you know, you can get them 70% better, but then you have to send them on their way. So there's always that, unknown are they are they where you wanted them to be so when i had this other thing this this videoing and editing that was kind of my own thing and i got to have this finality there was a project there was a beginning and the end and i could but i still didn't know what to do with it so i said well you know the natural thing in this day and age is start a youtube channel so at that point i had like three or four videos put stuff on youtube got a pretty decent response but one thing i would tell anybody that has an interest in doing videos or, or anything is don't watch the outdoor network. <laughs> <laughs> don't watch, don't watch the jewelry. Th- that type of stuff is it's unrealistic to me. And we've talked about it before. Some guys might be drawn off about not seeing a kill shot on camera. To me, as long as the hunt is authentic, do I wish I had more animals harvested on camera for sure? But if I only put videos out that were videos of me, taking animals in the field, I wouldn't have that many videos. So for me, it's like about the process. It's about telling the story, it's about getting people to know who I am and kind of what we're about. And, um, you know, it's just something that I kind of really fell in love with. I love sitting down with the kids to bed and editing some videos. Don't do it to get famous. Don't do it to make money. If your channel takes off, because there's that chance that it does take off and, uh, we monetize over the course of the last two months and there's a little bit of money rolling in. I'm not going to be buying my wife any diamond rings with it or anything like that, but you're not calling me from the Ferrari right now. No, no. <laughs> um, but it, you know, it's a cherry on top when you start having a little success with it and it motivates you to kind of keep, I guess, giving the people what they want if they like the content that you're putting out, but you have to accept the challenge of hunting. But like you said, I'm the same way, man. Like when it comes down to it, I'm a hunter. If the deer's off camera and I have a shot, I'm going to take that shot. Because I know when it comes, I've got enough footage before and I'll have enough footage after that I'll be able to pull a video together and it'll still mean something to me. But the challenge of videoing, the the fun part of editing, is just something that I've discovered and kind of really fell in love with the last three or four years. Yeah, and it's funny for me, very similar story. And I don't know if I've talked about this before, but... When I was younger and much thinner, uh, I really enjoyed skateboarding <laughs> when I was younger and like BMX stuff. So, so oh, really? Yeah. Little Tony Hawk. Yeah, yeah. So similar to uh, like, you know, you playing more traditional sports. That was around like the time Jackass was out, right? So we were filming yeah. skateboarding and same thing. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. The editing was fun. And then like you, uh, I didn't hunt much during college. And after college, I got more involved with it. And I started doing some video again. I was like, man, I forgot how much fun this is. Cause like 
I'm kind of a goof, so I just, <laughs> you know, the the music with your, with your video, kind of the same stuff, right? It's like I just like having fun and making it fun for oh, me. Yeah. If other people enjoy it, great. But I'd say 80, 85% of the reason I do it is like with my buddy out this year. I just like to, I know I will want to look back on those hunts and be like, boy, it's so much more vivid because I've got a video of it. Mm-hmm. There's something cool about thinking like my kids are eating five and to have them like 15 years from now, whether I'm still filming hunts or not to like watch their old man, like be on a hunt. And I've got, like some fishing videos with them in it where they can look back at those memories and see how big of a dork their dad was in these videos. <laughs> but there's just something cool about having that out there and kind of, uh, you know, creating that timestamp and always just having that, that memory out there, whether it's on YouTube or you have it on a computer at home. I still enjoy that process. Yeah. And we've talked about your channel a lot and I'm definitely going to plug it in the intro, but for people that haven't checked it out, and it's a like mine smaller channel but gaining some traction what is your youtube if people want to check out your content yeah so the youtube channel is called gemini ridge outdoors kind of a playoff being a twin gemini uh did i ever tell you what our what the initial name of the youtube channel is going to be jeremy i don't think so um if you look at some of our earlier videos um it was going to be called hornography (laughs) yeah (laughs) I actually, yeah, I do remember the titles of that from some of the first Kansas videos, but I thought that yeah, was yeah. Like a mini series. Yeah, that was a, that was a one-off thing. So funny story. We, we we are long lost brothers. I got to tell a story real quick. When I started running a bunch of cameras in Michigan, my girlfriend always used to say, "What are you doing, looking at your deer porn again?" So my cam- <laughs> my cameras names were Deer Porn One, Deer Porn Two, Deer Porn Three. Yeah, what are they? They call that horn porn or whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I made the first time I ever made that video with that doe killed. That's what I called it, and it was a joke. So it was this running joke <laughs> of like pornography. <laughs> and somebody's like, "Oh, you should call your channel that." I'm like, "Yeah, I don't know. That might get banned." But yeah. you know what? If it if it didn't, it probably people would probably think it's pretty funny. Yeah, that's I'm, I'm um, laughing. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So Gemini Ridge Outdoors is the is the YouTube channel, uh, Facebook. We have a page on Facebook called the same thing. Instagram is also the same. And then uh, Gemini Ridge. Then getting into the TikToks because oh like we talked about before, I like humor. And I used to I used to hate TikTok, Jeremy. I used to be like, I'm never going to do that. I'm still in that zone. Dumbest. Yeah, I'm never going to do that. It's the stupidest thing ever. So the only thing I post on TikTok is like funny stuff. And the one thing I've been doing is just like, movie quotes because i'm a movie quote guy i think most of us that are like born in the 80s for some reason we've got this thing in our blood where we have to quote every movie that we've ever seen sure so i do like the voiceovers on that and that's just kind of the the fun thing i don't get into like the seriousness of anything at all i don't get into tactical stuff on hunting most of that is on the is on the instagram and uh facebook and youtube all right. Well, I want to close out one more question here on filming because I think it's probably more popular than ever. Everybody I know and, and all of their brothers have YouTube channels. It seems like, <laughs> yeah, and that's a good thing because a lot of these smaller channels, the, some guys are putting out some really good content. Of course, just like anything, there's some bad ones too, but what would you say now that you've been filming? I think you said seven ish years. What have you learned and what tips would you give someone that's looking to film their first hunt and post their first videos online? Uh, two things I'd say. One is just start. Don't care what anybody else thinks. Like I, one time I had 
somebody tell me like I, I told him I was filming hunts and I had a YouTube channel and they said, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I was like, well, I think spending $500 on a purse is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know, it just don't, don't feed into the negativity. The internet can be a very negative place. People can be very negative. They, something that's outside the box, you might be afraid that they're, they're going to judge you, judge you for it. And again, going back to the you know, last two or three years of my life, I think I said this to you in Kansas. I'm a 39 year old with a YouTube channel. I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I'm in I the don't. exact same boat. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm creating this for myself. I'm creating this for the people that care about me. I'm, I'm creating this for people that are interested in it. I'm, I'm not trying to impress everybody because that's an impossible endeavor, especially on the internet, especially on YouTube. You're going to come across negativity. Whatever you do, stay true to yourself, do it for the right reasons and keep, and keep going. That's, that would be the number one thing is to, is to just get started. And the number two thing, I guess, building off of that would be just do it for the right reasons. You know, going back to TikTok and the reason why probably you don't like it and the reason why I really didn't like it is you saw so many people on there like trying to like get famous. Like I have no reservations about anybody ever knowing my name in the hunting community. That's, that's not why I do it. In fact, as I do things like this, as I do this podcast, I said, this, this is kind of why I do it, you know? So you get to sit here on a Monday night and talk hunting and, and filming and out of state hunts for a couple hours. Yeah. So those are, those are the things that keep me going with it. I, I don't do it for followers. When I look at followers, say, if I gain 10 followers in a day, is that pretty cool? Yeah. I, I enjoy that. It tells me that if people enjoy my content, keeps me motivated to create more, but it's not the sole reason I do it. You have to do it because you like doing it. And if you don't, that's okay. Just keep hunting, you know, keep hunting. Just don't think you're going to become rich or don't do it to become rich. God, I hope you do. Jeremy, I hope your channel blows up to a million viewers <laughs> and you take, you, you invite me to Montana every other weekend to go hunting. But, um, I think you're in the same boat as I am is that you do it because it's a challenge and you, and you do it because you love it. Yeah, don't hold your breath on that. I think you're uh, you're you got a pretty solid lead over me, but it's the cooking, man. It's the cooking. It's not even the the hunting. I like making the hunting content. I like telling the story, but man, people like that cooking. They want to know how to cook venison. I'm for it. <laughs> it makes sense. Look how popular Ronella is with with that formula, and it's not trophy hunting. It's the whole experience, and the cooking is a huge part of that. I just uh, made a video today. Well, I I recorded it today. I didn't edit it yet. It was. Uh, venison stroganoff so be looking for that one <laughs> that's one of my go-to meals i love venison stroganoff and there's so many ways to do it uh, this is just my take on it but it, you, it's so good well hey that's all i had for you before i cut you loose i want to turn it over to you and i always like to give the guests the closing words or last bit of wisdom anything that you've learned or that's been real important to you over your you know your hunting career that you would like to pass on to the listeners on the channel this is your time biggest thing um hmm. hunting life fishing whatever it may be relationships that you have just keep just keep growing just get outside your comfort zone that's one thing that i've learned again over the last two or three years getting outside my comfort zone in multiple avenues of my life whether that's in the outdoors or other avenues and challenge yourself keep challenging yourself that'd be the biggest thing i tell anybody Oh, that's a great message and a, and a great thing to close on. So I want to thank you, first of all, 
for your time. Second, for being such a good sport after I blew your buck out there in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> that was Darren's buck. He was watching that one. That oh, okay. <laughs> well, sorry, Darren. You'll have to have to pass my condolences along with that. But no, it's been uh, it's been great getting to know you and your brother. Looking forward to hopefully some more Kansas hunts and. You're welcome back on the podcast anytime you want. Appreciate it, man. All right. Well, take care. You too.